Hello and welcome to Truth Talks, brought to you by South African author, theologian and church leader, Dr. Christopher Pepler. Good morning, Village Church, scattered wherever you may be. Today we're continuing our series on the book of Revelations, chapters 2 and 3, as to the seven churches of Revelation. I'm going to read today from Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17, which is the church in Pergamon. This is what the Lord Jesus dictated to John to transcribe. He wrote, To the angel of the church of Pergamon write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith to me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent thereof, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. The church names in the book of Revelation, the seven churches, are all highly significant. And they tell us something about the character of the church or the issue that Jesus was addressing. For instance, Ephesus means desirable one. And that is entirely in keeping with the letter because Ephesus is a church, in some ways a very model church, but one who had lost something of its first love for Jesus. Pergamum, the church that we're looking at today, means married. And that is a clue to the condition that Jesus is addressing, as will become quite obvious to you as we go through this. Jesus starts the letter as he starts all the other letters, both referring to the symbolic portrayal of himself in chapter 1. Here he's shown with a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Also, a bit later in verse 16, he talks about fighting against them. That's the ones who are like Balaam and the Nicolaitans with the sword of his mouth. Also, at the book of Revelation at the end, Revelation 19, 15, he is pictured as a warrior king riding a white horse and striking down the evil nations with a sword from his mouth. Then in Ephesians 2, sorry, 6 verse 15, it talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And finally in Hebrews 4 verse 12 is written, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. So the sword of the mouth, the double-edged sword, is symbolic of the Word of God, which is essentially the Bible, but more specifically, it's the revelation of Jesus, the revelation of the full triune God in and through Jesus, which is shown and shines out of the Scriptures. It is this symbolic sword, this Word of God, that defines, judges and corrects doctrine and lifestyle. Verse 13, Jesus says this, I know where you live, 
where Satan has his throne. And then later on he talks about your city, where Satan lives. Now, Pergamum was the center of emperor worship. You see, the emperor of Rome liked to regard himself as divine, a little godlet. So he had these statues and he had these temples and altars erected all around his, his realm. But it was also home to the temples of Dionysus, god of wine and revelry, Athena, Demeter, and Zeus. The city itself was built at the foot of a tall conical hill. Halfway up was the temple to Zeus. It is actually a great altar that looked like a huge throne, and it belched the smoke of its sacrifices 24-7. What a, what a horrible sight, the throne of Satan. The chief god of Pergamum, however, wasn't Zeus, and it wasn't the emperor. It was a god called Escalapius, the serpentine god of healing and enlightenment. It was his emblem that was on the actual standard, on the flag of the city of Pergamum, and the emblem was a snake wrapped around a pole. Familiar to you? He is said to have died and come back to life, been resurrected, and he was absolutely renowned in that part of the world for his occult healing and enlightenment. Pergamum was also the world seat of Satan worship that had moved there from Babylon. Now, where have we encountered the slippery serpentine customer before? Well, in the Garden of Eden, of course, when Satan appeared to Eve at the foot of the tree of knowledge of all things and promised her if she would just obey him that she would have godlike status and great wisdom and great enlightenment. And he's still active in our world today. That same Satan, that same serpent, that same one masquerading as a snake and as the demigod, the Escalapius. And his demonic healing is still the greatest enticement that he uses for people to believe in his dark doctrine. People even in our day are lured into a belief in false enlightenment because of false healings that take place, sometimes to them, and it lures them in. Now, the second half of verse 13 actually describes how most of the congregation of Pergamon weren't lured by him, weren't taken in by him, that they stayed true to the name of Jesus, despite the satanic infection. And even one called Antipas had stood against Escalapius and he had paid with his life. Then verses 14 and 15 address the heretics in the congregation. You see, there was a group in there that were followers of this insidious doctrine. And he equates them to Balaam of the Old Testament and to the Nicolaitans of the New. I actually think, and I think this was mentioned about three weeks ago in the very second section we had on this, on this book, I think they mean the same thing. I think they're describing exactly the same group. You see, there's a very, very clever wordplay involved here. Because the word Balaam can be made up of two Hebrew words, one meaning the people and the other one conquer. The people are conquered, to conquer the people. And the word Nicolaitia can also be made up from two Greek words, meaning exactly the same thing. So Balaam in the Hebrew and Nicolaitia in the New. 
in the Greek of the New Testament mean a group of people who were set to try and conquer the church, overcome its members. Now a little bit of Old Testament background about this to give you context. Balaam was a prophet and there was a king called Balak and the Israelites were coming through his territory in their journeys towards the promised land. And he was very disturbed about this. He wanted to overcome them, to conquer them, those people. So he called upon the prophet Balaam of the area to come and curse the Israelites. He thought if they could be cursed, then they'd be weak and he could fight against them. But God prohibited Balaam from pronouncing a curse and in fact told him rather to pronounce a blessing. But... Balaam then sneakily suggested to King Balak that there was another way to conquer, to overcome the Israelites. This was his strategy. He said, O King, just get some of the prettiest, most good-looking of your young ladies and let them seduce the young men of Israel and then let them marry them. And when they are married, let them bring their idols and their pagan festivals and their satanic ways into the very camp of Israel. What a plan. You see, pagan religion of those days featured banquets made of food sacrificed to the god idols of their day and illicit sex. They even had temple prostitutes in those days. Now, in our days, the incursion into us, the people of God, the new Israel, is a lot more subtle. Here are some of his present-day infiltration tactics that we need to watch out for. One, there is a foot an easy-to-believe gospel. Some call it hypergrace. It really says this, God loves you too much to change you. When the truth is, God loves you too much not to change you. And their second footstool of their doctrine is, Jesus has dealt with all your sins, dear brother, dear sister, past present and future. So whatever you might do today, whatever you might do in the future, don't worry about it. Don't confess it. Because Jesus has dealt with it on the cross of Calvary. Just accept it, dear brother, dear sister, and live blissfully with this belief. The second insidious strategy is business tactics, business strategies, where the church is positioned to deal with and to appeal to the consumerist society of our day. What can I get? What will you give me? How will you entertain me? And so churches all around us and all around the world have become attractional models, trying to attract people into them, to thinking that if they can just draw them away from the world entertainment, they can provide a better form of entertainment with the easy gospel and their social words. Third tactic, compromised values regarding marriage, gender, sexual behavior, and the word of the day, wokeness. Um, you'll have to ask somebody, maybe Adam afterwards, what wokeness means because I'm running out of time here. Another tactic is acceptance of relevant, sorry, relative rather than absolute truth. So today the tactic says, no, 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 there's no such thing as absolute truth. To forget about your Bible and that, anybody's opinion counts as much as the words of Scripture. My opinion, they say, has as much authority as the Word of God. Then the fifth 
great tactic is New Age healing practices and philosophies. And this, I must tell you, includes a lot of the occult signs and wonders that we see in much of the worldwide church today. Lastly, the one I want to mention last, I'm sure there are many, many others, is the deadly mantra, which goes like this. Yes, Jesus is good, but he is not God. The truth is, yes, Jesus is good, and he is God. Now, the call to the cultic sect of the Church of Pergamum is the same as the call is to our church today. And the word is repent. Essentially, repent is simple to understand. It means stop what you do. Turn around 180 degrees and walk towards Jesus. Turn away from what you were and embrace what you can be in Christ Jesus. Stop, turn around and walk towards Lord Jesus. Now, this same Jesus never brings a word of judgment and correction without offering reward and redemption to the faithful. And this is what he promises to that church of those days and to the church of today. In verse 17, he says, I will give you some of the hidden manna. And here he's referring, I'm sure, to the bread from heaven, so they thought, that fell on the ground when they were wandering through the wilderness. The Israelites ate manna, sweet-tasting bread from heaven. And it sustained them for year after year after year. But Jesus told us, he said, I am the living bread. I am the bread from heaven. He also said to them and to us, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, there's much debate about white stones meant that could have been used for all sorts of purposes. But the one purpose that I think fits this letter the best is that they were used for the entrance into events like these satanic festivals, like these orgies. So they were given a white stone on which was inscribed the emblem of the host. What do you think emblem was inscribed on those little white stones that those people in Pergamum were given to enter the wassails, the orgies, the banquets of Escalapius? Well, a serpent wrapped around a pole, I guess. But Jesus invites all who are true to his name, who have been born again of his spirit, who bear the name of Jesus. And he writes in Revelation chapter 10, verse 9, Blessed are those who are invited to attend the wedding supper of the Lamb. The cultists are invited surreptitiously and secretly to attend the wedding supper of Escalapius. The believers are invited publicly and with joy to attend the wedding supper of the Lamb, the great reunion of the church in heaven, the church on earth, in the final end times to meet with Jesus. And all of this is prefigured today in the church regularly. In fact, Jesus said, do this regularly in remembrance of me. Yeah, we call it Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. It's a symbol of the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And of course, dear believer, you know the name inscribed on our white stone, don't you? You know the name that only you know, that the pagan world does not know. Yes, of course. The name inscribed is Jesus.
God bless you. Thank you for listening to Truth Talks from Truth is the Word Ministry. If you'd like to share your views, read up on related topics, or purchase one of Dr. Pepler's books, please visit his blog on truthistheword.com. And remember, truth talks.